0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash chapters. There you'll find over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. On this episode of Chapters.
1: In November 1955, and I'm using their language now, I'm reading from the FBI file, In November 1955, an admitted homosexual furnished information concerning a number of Hollywood personalities. He claimed that Eddie Fisher was a homosexual and that his wife, Debbie Reynolds, was known as a person who engaged in both normal and homosexual relations.
0: What? Welcome to Chapters. I'm Mary Mahoney, and on this episode, we're going to examine what it's like to read something that was created to be kept secret. We're going to enter the vault with historian Matt Gariglia and examine FBI files, files created by the FBI to monitor suspicious and, as we'll hear, even patriotic Americans and persons of interest. On this episode, we'll hear why Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone was of interest to the FBI, what's in Debbie Reynolds' file, and learn about an offer Walt Disney made to the FBI and more. This is Chapters. Okay, so. Here with me, and we're here to discuss one kind of secret reading. And I'm very excited to have you on the show. I'm um excited to be here. I should say that you were technically the first guest on chapters, and your episode was tragically lost due to technological error on my part.
1: Yes, it is the lost episode. It's
0: the lost episode, but I'm happy that you're here now. So to give our listeners a brief introduction to you as you get your materials together. You're a historian, you're a journalist, you study the history of policing in New York City and the idea of policing as a technology. Is that a fair description?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in state building and state power and the many ways that that manifests itself in people's mm-hmm. daily lives.
0: Very good. Very good. And so I've asked you here today because I know that one kind a lot of your research has you wrapped up in what we might call secret files.
1: Yeah, uh, a lot of my work, both historically and for um, more journalistic purposes, is uh, in declassified FBI files and Freedom of Information Act requesting.
0: Excellent. So can you explain how you get access to these things and then maybe tell us, take us on a journey, What have you found? What are some I asked you to pull some of your favorite files declassified FBI files to share with us. But before we get there, maybe tell us the process of getting these files.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the Freedom of Information Act uh, dates back to the 1960s, and it's basically um, a law that says that any person in the United States can request files. There are a few exemptions if it's going to you know, mess up an ongoing investigation or if it's going to violate somebody's privacy, you can't get them. But that any documents created by a public institution, you should be able to have access to. And a lot of um, the ability to gain access it just has to do with requesting, with making a very specific case for uh, what exact documents you want, which you know creates this interesting thing where you have to think about events and the activity of institutions through the documents they produce because hmm. you need to be able to uh, ask for them specifically
0: hmm. Okay, so do you want to give us some examples?
1: Yeah, so uh, I pulled some things from my personal archive here, just things uh, from the different periods I've been interested in. Um, I have a big, uh, like, six-inch binder in front of me here.
0: I'm going to take a picture of it if it's not confidential. Uh, No, that would be
1: fine. And it's filled with the personnel files of the first three African-American FBI agents. Hmm. Um, which are very interesting because uh, of all of the files I've requested, uh, these feel the most complete to me. So, like, for here, I'll open it up uh, so you can see it. This is um, the uh, application to be an FBI agent filled out by James Amos, uh, November 5th, 1923. And so, you know, part of (laughs) reading things that... Our secret is sometimes you feel like you shouldn't have that. Mm. So I, you know, this is the the application he filled out, complete with uh, the attached letters of recommendation from officers in the military or uh, other people who we, he requested as references. Wow. Um, and this one is unusual too because I even have. Uh, and I know this will speak to you and your interests, but I even have his uh, complete medical records. Ooh. He was required to get uh, checkups uh, every couple of years to make sure he was physically fit enough to be an FBI agent. So as you can see, there's like a full dentist report. where there marking on a, on a map of his mouth where cavities are. And you can see that he's colorblind. And, you know, as you flip through the file, you'll see every time uh, he was up for a pay raise, every year or so, there are, like, his letter requesting it, letters between his direct superior to the director, making sure it was okay that he got a pay raise. Like, here's a letter from uh, March 29th, 1923, saying that your compensation is hereby increased to $7 a day. So. Hmm. Just feels like very personal stuff that sometimes I <laughs> I still have to catch myself that it seems a little bit weird that I have it.
0: Is there anything that you've encountered in these files that you that made you uncomfortable? That made you feel like you were reading something that was not your business?
1: Yeah, yeah. If we if we pull out uh, actually it was actually the first FBI file I ever requested because of my personal interest in the time period and the subject matter, and it's uh, Rod Serling. Rod Serling, the uh, founder and creator of the Twilight Zone's FBI file.
0: I know, that's a great interest of yours, the Twilight uh,
1: Zone. <laughs> yes, uh, and the, uh, the file begins in 1945 when he's applying for um, a job at the Voice of America, which is basically the immediate post-war, early Cold War kind of international radio propaganda network. Um, And that required a full FBI check. And one of the things they uncovered about him is that uh, he was dismissed from a job as a camp counselor at a sleepaway camp in upstate New York because he uh, would make out with his girlfriends in front of the campers. Wow. (laughs) Which just feels like, like something way too personal.
0: Wow. Did you say girlfriends? Uh, and no,
1: I think it's just one, although the file doesn't really uh, wow. specify.
0: But can you imagine applying for a job and that becomes public knowledge to your potential employer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the file probably w- wouldn't have been available until after his death. But yeah, but then anybody could request that. Um, See, so yeah, there were a lot of like deeply personal things, especially the FBI under Jager Hoover was very concerned with people's sexualities and stuff. Um, and so, reading these files, even if you know it's not "quote unquote" true, uh, the fact that informants are telling FBI that these things are true is fascinating. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, which leads me to the surprise that I brought with me today, which was just recently declassified. Oh my! Uh, I know of your love of uh, golden ages of Hollywood. <gasps> And I have with... Don't me,
0: toy with me, man. I
1: have with me here uh, the newly declassified uh, Debbie Reynolds <gasps> FBI file.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, which, What's
0: in there? Have you read it?
1: So I flipped through it. It's not long. It's three pages, which uh, is interesting. I mean, one is, you know, a request from 1968 of a... Looks like a list of celebrities uh, asking if there are any files on these celebrities. And so I believe, so Rod Serling is on that list. And knowing Rod Serling's file, uh, what he did in 1968 was speak at a ACLU dinner. Hmm. Um, And so I'm fairly certain that this list of celebrities are probably just attendees of that ACLU dinner, Hmm. which include Debbie Reynolds. Of course. Um, And and Danny Kay, Fred Astaire, James Stewart.
0: Looking at the list now.
1: Uh, But here's what's interesting to me. This is from March 18th, 1968. Um, That uh, in November 1955, and I'm using their language now, I'm reading from the FBI file. In November 1955, an admitted homosexual furnished information concerning a number of Hollywood personalities... He claimed that Eddie Fisher was a homosexual, and that his wife, Debbie Reynolds, was known as a person who engaged in both normal and homosexual relations. What? So, I I don't, you know, obviously, uh, we can't know for sure, you know, we this don't... This is just the rumor We now. can't know, We maybe we shouldn't know, it doesn't matter, it's her business, but... Uh, somebody in November 1955 was telling the FBI that uh, Debbie Reynolds swings both ways. So these are the sorts of uh, weird tidbits you pick up when wow. you look at secret documents.
0: But this would be like an interesting moment for us to kind of pause and take a step back and Please, say "Yes, let's think about this as a source. So mm-hmm. there might be people listening who are not historians. Of course. Probably more people listening who are not you know, historians like us. Let's think about this as a source. So we're coming at this piece of paper and we're saying as historians, we're interested in what's on this piece of paper, but also what, how it got here, Mm -hmm. what motivated this. So we have this piece of paper that says Debbie Reynolds potentially was interested in here, there and everywhere. Yes. Whatever she wanted, free country. It's all happening. Good for Debbie, but that's how I feel. But what might have... As historians, what kind of questions would we ask of this document? Uh,
1: well, instantly, I mean, questions that would come to mind is, uh, why is the FBI so concerned with people's sexualities?
0: Yeah. So let's start there. Why was the FBI so concerned about people's sexualities? Why would Debbie Reynolds' sexuality matter to anyone?
1: Uh, well, in... in um then I I mean talking about the period of the red scare, also the the parallel lavender scare, which is the fear that um people with uh you know same sex inclinations working in government um, if they were in the closet could be found out uh, their secrets could be found out, and they could be blackmailed. And so the idea would be, uh, you know, if you're working at the CIA or the State Department or somewhere, and um, the somebody from the Soviet Union approaches you and says, I, I know what you do on your nights off, mm-hmm. uh, you either go grab some folders from work for me or I tell your employer. Um, and so the fear, the lavender scare of the fear was that people in the government would be susceptible to blackmail. But why the FBI would be concerned is they were also interested in doing similar things. Um, and J. Edgar Hoover was, I mean, basically a, a professional blackmailer uh, who gathered deeply personal dirt on everyone he could just in case he ever needed leverage on them.
0: And we should add as a topical piece that One of the most famous cases in which J. Edgar Hoover did this, he delved into someone's personal life, was Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And James Comey, the now-fired former director of the FBI, had in his office a document that J. Edgar Hoover solicited about Martin Luther King Jr.'s private life as a lesson to him about the dangers of too much power.
1: I actually did not know that.
0: Happy to share.
1: You're teaching me things about the FBI. I love it.
0: There you go. Um, never thought I would ever see that um, day. But I think that's a really compelling piece. I'm. Why was J. Edgar Hoover so interested? Was it because he just wanted power over...
1: Yeah, I mean power, and I think, uh, to some sense, I know uh, his own kind of twisted curiosity. I mean, he had a a personal archive only really accessible from his office, mm. uh, which was known to be filled with all of like the most kind of sexually explicit material that surveillance and agents have had acquired.
0: And was this an archive that only he could read? Because I'm thinking now about how we organize this. As I know another interest of yours, but how we physically organize information. So now everything is digital for mm-hmm. the most part, and you can keyword search things, you can look in a database. But if you're J. Hoover, is he arranging his files in a particular way or using fate, false names on files so that literally only he knows what he has?
1: No, no. Um, from what I understand, the files were... Pretty clear. They just they were only accept, you know accessible by him and probably his number two, Clyde Tolson, mm. um, who they were rumored to be lovers. But again, you know, but yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me about Debbie Reynolds isn't so much the question of whether or not she actually you know participated in these things, but but what's interesting to me is that the FBI carried out for the better part of a decade under the assumption that she was. Mm. Um, which is what interests me, you know, is that somewhere she may have been on, on a list. Well, obviously she was because the files yeah. exist.
0: And what do they do with these lists that they keep of people?
1: I don't know. You know, like, um, there there was at some point a list with, I think, uh, close to a million individuals on it, which were leftists, labor organizers, you know, writers for left-wing magazines, people who are activists, people who, did, you know... Uh, a, a whole plethora of things could get you on this list. And, um, at some point the idea was that in the case of, uh, war with the Soviet Union, those people would be immediately interred for the safety of the Republic, hmm. um, was that to, to put everyone. And so, so these lists exist and they're very large and, you know, one of the, um, one things you always one of the one things you always get when you get a FOIA request back from the FBI is they say that they cannot confirm the existence of that person's name on any specific watch lists, any specific mm. lists. So one would assume that there are more lists than just that one mm. uh, from the twentieth century that you know a name could be on one or many of those lists. Mm.
0: And it wasn't so. A lot of these files that we think about now, or at least a lot of historians think about, are linked in some way to the Cold War or to J. Edgar Hoover. Like when people think about the FBI and not great practices, people think about the J. Edgar Hoover era. Yeah. Um, But there's also, I want to get to in a minute, sort of more current histories. But in the Cold War, it wasn't just people who threatened the state or seemed to pose a threat to the state through their radicalism who were of interest. It was also people who were avowed friends of the U.S. government, people who wanted to help the U.S. government in the Cold War in other ways. And one of the files that you showed me that really fascinated me, I'm wondering if you'll talk about it. Of You course. know where I'm going with I'm, this. I know exactly
1: where you're because going. Because you
0: gave it to me, and I now teach it all the time, and students love it. And that's Walt Disney's FBI file.
1: It's it's fascinating, yeah. And I imagine that Walt Disney's FBI file reads a lot like, say, Ronald Reagan's FBI file. And that they were you know, known informants. They were friends of the FBI. They allowed... Uh, the FBI access to in the, in the, in the case of Disney, uh, he, the FBI and Disney worked in tandem to, uh, kind of sort out alleged communists within the animators union. Hmm. Um, there was a, a a very large strike at Disney that kind of, uh, put Disney on edge for the better part of the forties and fifties. Um,
0: so Disney never had a crisis, a crisis of confidence in the same way others did about should I be revealing you know private information about my employees to the FBI? Oh, not at
1: all. I mean, I mean you know the because I've written about this before, but uh, part of the his FBI file that fascinates me so much is that he actually invited Jagger Hoover and the FBI. To take a spot of the world at the World of Tomorrow, which ended up being you know part of Epcot, where you go through and you see televisions that where you can video, you know, conference people, call mm-hmm. people, and uh, all these things that are very familiar to us today, but back then were you know astonishing. Mm-hmm. And he really wanted uh, the Jagger Hoover and the FBI to curate a section on the law enforcement of tomorrow on fustri- futuristic technologies and to do things about fingerprinting and, you know, different kind of criminal file management and all the kind of the most modern uh, investigative techniques. Mm-hmm. And so not only did he, you know, assist in investigations, did he invite Jagger Hoover to... Uh, Disneyland, but also um, also serve as kind of a a propaganda arm of the FBI to some extent. Where um, at some point they had a a children's show, and there was a a script pitched in which children would, uh, as part of an ongoing series, where you know Disney Mouseketeers would take tours of different facilities. They wanted these kids to take a tour of the FBI headquarters hmm. and to, like, shoot Tommy guns and learn how to dust for fingerprints. and
0: To make kids want to grow up to be FBI agents.
1: Yeah, yeah. And to, so if you look at Walt Disney's FBI file, the full script of that, I'm pretty sure it was never filmed, but the full <laughs> script of that Mouseketeer episode in which children are touring the FBI is there, and it's fascinating.
0: And unbeknownst to him, they were also following him, isn't that right? Or they were, had him under some kind of surveillance. Or I remember something from the file where they—they they didn't seem as—as interested in having his assistance all the time, or in, in doing all the things he pitched as yeah. he was.
1: Yeah, a lot of people like that. A lot of like. Um very gung-ho Hooverites during that era who just wanted to help out the FBI any way they could, were were kind of held at arm's length because they thought that, like, they might go out and actually, like, blow active investigations. So, I mean, the famous case with this, uh, besides Disney is also uh, Elvis uh
0: tell me more i mean the
1: the story goes i've never seen elvis's fbi file but the story goes that he drunkenly stormed into janitor hoover's office and and uh told him that he was the greatest american who had ever lived and that he wanted to help with investigations and uh supposedly he tried he tried to help the cia and the fbi get john lennon deported but that's a story (laughs) you probably know very well
0: I don't know that one so much as when he stormed the White House to see Nixon and demanded to be appointed a member, a drug enforcement officer.
1: You know, I think that might have been the same trip to D.C.
0: Yeah, it all happened <laughs> where he drunkenly flew in and no one knew where he was. And he was very upset with Priscilla and the colonel, who was his manager. And I don't remember the full details. I've read Elvis' bios, but... And we have a forthcoming episode about Elvis as a reader. He himself was quite a reader and loved government conspiracy theories. But he believed that he could be a great law enforcement official and went to the White House when Nixon was president and basically had a handwritten note that he slid in and said, hello, I'm Elvis Presley. I'd like to see the president. And they were running around very confused because no one expected him. And long story short, they let him into the Oval Office. Somehow he got into the White House with a gun. He presented Nixon with a pistol um, as a gift.
1: So very unsafe.
0: And there's a wonderful photograph that I will try to put on the website of Elvis in a full suede suit um, with Nixon looking very confused. And it's one of my favorite things. Wow. Uh, But let's think about why these sources are interesting so we have these secret files that now we can have access to what should we do with them
1: that's a good question i mean the way i like to use them um is on the one hand i'm interested in in Learning how the U.S. government, specifically kind of the, the mechanisms of, of state power and law enforcement, uh, how they saw the world and how they saw specific citizens. Mm. So you can kind of get uh, a, a worldview from the point of view of the state mm. uh, is how I like to use files. But the other thing is, you know, they can enrich events from history because all of a sudden you have another set of eyes who were there, who were in the room, you know? And so uh, another thing I love to look for, and like to me, the this is pure FBI file gold, is um, when you find things that I found and say like uh, Emma Goldman's FBI file or uh, the IWW organizer Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's file where – uh, you know, they gave famous speeches and, you know, there are even still transcripts of those speeches or in their memoirs. They talk about being in so-and-so labor, in the Cincinnati Labor Hall, giving a speech. Mm. And you get into these FBI files and you learn that there was an FBI agent undercover in the hall. Mm. And so all of a sudden you get an entirely different set of eyes in that room at that time who are there to... Uh, take as detailed notes as they can. Um, But also they they see that event through a very different perspective that we know and understand.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, So it's very cool to just like know that, you know, Emma Goldman was giving a speech at this location at this night. And she doesn't say much about it. It went well. There were a lot of people there. But then you go into the FBI files and you find like 10 pages from just that night. Hmm. Uh, So it's very cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, has that? Have you ever read a file that really changed your understanding of a person or event from the other kinds of sources you looked at?
1: Yeah, um, I think one of the most kind of um, compelling and engaging and like really life-changing, actually, moment, because I, I found this years and years ago when I was just kind of getting into FBI files, was um, in the FBI file of the Daily Worker, the U S communist newspaper, there was a, a clipping in the file of a, a front page headline, which said, you know, FBI agents beat up one of our reporters. And there's the clipping is sent from Washington field office to New York field office. And they say like, uh, was this really us? Did one of your agents really beat up these writers? And New York writes back, no, it wasn't us. I have no idea who did it. Uh, Should we issue a retraction? Should we write to them and say, listen, we're really sorry one of your reporters got beat up, but it wasn't us. And the Washington uh, office writes back, no, let's not, because I think there is a lot of benefits to them thinking that FBI agents are roaming the streets and would beat them up. Mm -hmm. And so it really kind of changed my whole perspective about what U.S. intelligence gathering is about. That it's not always about just learning as much as you can about these groups. Sometimes it's about surveillance being an an active participant in the making of the politics. Mm.
0: You remind me of that quote by um, Winston Churchill that says, History will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And I'm wondering about the construction of files that from their inception are meant to be secret. Is there a sense that you can guess, um, you can gather from a source base that is, you know, collected and curated by so many different voices, but all with the sense that what they're keeping is secret? Is there a sense of consciousness that they're writing for history?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Do you
0: see them trying to defend an action that they might know to be illegal or immoral by their standards?
1: Yeah. Yeah. To some extent, I mean, I I think they really do because the writers are, um, you know, I mean, obviously they're incredibly biased. They make unbelievably uh, kind of ill-informed assumptions at times about people and their politics and their sexuality and stuff, as we've talked about. Um, But they're very meticulous in their attributing where information comes from. You know, and like uh, they're very meticulous researchers. Um, and then, all, you know, sometimes you'll you'll get things wrong. Like the famous uh, labor historians um, Jack and Philip Foner, uh, were twins, hmm. and because they had the same birth date, uh, their FBI files are like. <laughs> All like most of the time the Philip Phoner's FBI file who is kind of the real person they were interested in like They wouldn't show sure if he was Jack or Philip and they go back and forth and like y- You can get the sense that they don't really know which one is which or if they're one person that goes by the different right. names at different right. times um, But but I mean but you you see his entire bibliography is listed hmm. You know y- you get the sense that they've read these books hmm. Uh, A great book came out a few years ago that argued that uh, the FBI is one of the longest standing and most prolific critics of black literature because they just had these agents read everything that, you know, Claude McKay wrote or that uh, Amiri Baraka wrote. and,
0: And weigh in on them in the files. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, weigh in on them from a particular perspective, which is, can we assess from this literature if this person is a, uh, is a national security risk? Mm-hmm. But that is a type of criticism nonetheless.
0: Very interesting. And I guess what I'm wondering, lastly, is we're talking about an archive that you have dipped into using FOIA requests, but part of the FOIA experience is sometimes you might get a response that says either that file doesn't exist or you can't look at it. So I'm wondering if you think at all as a historian, because obviously the construction of the archive is itself an argument. So it's not just we make arguments as historians after reading files and saying, okay, this is what I can gather this person's life was like, and this is an argument I can make about his role in the world or whatever it is. What argument can we make about how this arg- this archive itself has been shaped?
1: That's, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, they're, they, because because these institutions are bound by people uh, and they were only so large, you know, uh, they often had to prioritize. Or, you know, sometimes people you think were incredibly radical and like definitely had an FBI mm-hmm. file, you get in and you learn there is no FBI file because they didn't know who this person was or they didn't care or they didn't seem threatening mm-hmm. offhand. Um, and so it's, you know,. It's not as complete as you would think. Mm-hmm. there you know the FBI liked to present itself as being omniscient, um, but when you get into the actual files, you learn quite often that they weren't. you know some people you think were not threatening at all have massive files, and some people you think were the most radical, awesome activists in the world had no file at all,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which the the interesting thing about the archive uh, is you find yourself kind of rooting for the fbi you know like you wouldn't wish fbi surveillance on your worst enemy and yet uh these heroes of yours you request their file and when it turns out they were under surveillance you're almost angry (laughs) Um, and the other thing too is you know you cannot unless you have written permission you can't request uh, somebody's fbi file until they're deceased and so it also you get to this morbid place where you just kind of wish some people you really enjoy would uh would die so you can request their files already. Oh no. Uh it sounds odd and it sounds terrible, but unless you have access to that person, you can get written permission, you know, you just have to uh you know, may they all have You're very worried. long may they all have very long lives, but you just have to wait it out in hopes that uh you can request their file.
0: Can you FOIA yourself?
1: You can. Yeah, I haven't done it just for that morbid purpose where, or that like-
0: You're rooting for yourself to die.
1: Well, no, I, I, I am of a mixed feeling where part of me thinks that, oh man, if I have an FBI file, it means I'm doing something right maybe, that I'm, I'm requesting so many files and they're nervous about the files I'm getting close to or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so, so requesting my own file and not getting anything back would be partially a relief, but also a little disappointing.
0: Fair. Uh, so can you point us to any files just by way of closing that people who are interested might want to check out if they're interested in this kind of source or this kind of history?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, so the FBI has on their website The Vault, mm-hmm. which uh, they have put up newly declassified files that um, maybe people have requested—people request often enough— that they said, let's just put it up online. So, like, after he died, a million people requested Muhammad Ali's FBI files. They put it on the vault. Um, and so the FBI vault is a great resource where there were just thousands and thousands of pages of PDFs of all sorts of famous people's FBI files that you can go in and take a look at. Um, you know, Isaac Asimov. There's, like, there's been a lot of resurgence and interest in the uh, FBI files of science fiction writers. So if you're interested in, you know, that kind of weird relationship between future and the past and fiction, uh, I would certainly recommend recommend looking at Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov's FBI files.
0: And what um, will they tell us?
1: That some people were very concerned that uh writers were sneaking communist propaganda into science fiction, but the FBI didn't seem all that concerned. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, any other parting thoughts on FBI files and
1: Uh, go out there and and make some requests. It's very easy. It's very fun. You know, you probably won't hear back for about six or eight months, but uh, it'll be could be a nice surprise in your mailbox to open up to a big vanilla envelope from the FBI. It might scare your mailman. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Sounds great. Well, Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. I'd like to thank our guest Matt for sharing his knowledge with us. You can follow him on Twitter at MGoriglia. That's G U A R I G L I A. There you can find links to his reporting and scholarship. You can find us on Twitter at Chapters Pod. You can find me at Mary Mahoney123 and Taylor, our producer, at MJTThePhD. You can find us on Instagram at Chapters Pod. There you'll find shelfies submitted by our guests. We're redesigning our website at the moment, but be sure to follow our page on Facebook and you can get updates on the show and join conversations about each episode with other listeners. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps listeners find our show. Thanks so much for listening.